You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time for love and a time for hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God has done will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Before we jump into today's text, will you join me in prayer? Father, as we open your word this morning, I'm so comforted by the the words we just sang, that you are working all things for our good. You are for us as your people. You're not against us. I pray as we wrestle with this challenging text that your spirit would give us eyes to see the truth, the wonderful, challenging, but ultimately comforting truths that are here. And I pray, Lord, that we would know the love that you have for us, the purpose you have for us, that you are sovereign over all and you control all. I pray especially for people here who are suffering or struggling that they might receive great comfort. Pray for people who, whose hearts have grown cold towards you, who are going through the motions this morning. Lord, I thank you that they showed up. And I pray that your word would be like a warm fire on a cold night. And I pray for everyone else that's just kind of running through life, got a lot on their mind. Lord, would you slow our minds and our hearts enough to hear your word, be changed by it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us or you're new here, we've spent the last few weeks going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're just kind of getting in the flow of it. And Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book. It's a challenging book. Uh, It's fun at places and at places it's really hard because Ecclesiastes is a book that asks the really big questions of life. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's our meaning? It asks questions about injustice. When we see injustice in the world, where is God in the face 
of injustice. And the teacher, he kind of meanders from different topics, like here and then here and then here. And in chapter 3, he talks about time. We as human beings, we live in a world there is time, and time's, you know, it's one of these things that if you stop and really think about time, it's kind of mind-bending, and the teacher does some reflection on what is the meaning of time? You know, in the poem, which is the first half of the section that Lindsay read for us, he's saying that life is filled with seasons, and some seasons are good, some are bad. Some seasons delight our souls, and some seasons disquiet our souls. There's a, there's a time for planting, that's a good season, a time for uprooting, a time for building, a time for t- tearing down. And when you read it, it almost feels like this gentle meandering stream that he's just talking about life. It's this, and then it's this, and then it's this, and then it's this. But I don't think that that's the teacher's point. When we talked about this last week, the teacher's point in describing all of these different seasons that we feel in life is that we are not ultimately in control. That life happens to us way more than we can control uh, what happens to us. In time, it's not so much a gentle, gentle stream as it is this raging, swollen river that steals from us everything that it gives us. And I, I, don't, I probably should have said, if you're new to Ecclesiastes, this guy, he just kind of cuts straight to the point, and he's kind of harsh and abrasive at times, but it's for our good. It challenges us. And so after he lists these seasons of delights and disquiets, he then asks the big question of his book. He says in verse 9, what do workers gain from their toil? We look at life, and it's filled with Wonderful joys and gut-wrenching tragedies, times of growing and times of dying. What is the gain in all of it? What's the profit? What's left over from all of the activity? You know, in each of the 14 pairings in the poem, there's a positive and there's a negative. And the one cancels the other out. Uprooting undoes planting, tearing down undoes building, killing ends all hope of healing, death is the end of life, and war puts an end to peace. What's the gain in all of this, he's saying? I mean, this is the really hard question of Ecclesiastes. It's the question that we we tend to avoid as human beings. But when we look at our life filled with all of this activity... And we run and we stress and we go from one thing to the next thing and we're worried and then we're wor- whatever we're worried about gets solved and then we worry about something else and then that gets resolved. And we do all of this and the teacher's the guy who steps back and he says, but, but what, what's the point of all of this? What do we gain? Yeah, every great season of joy is followed by sorrow and then you'll have joy again and then you'll have sorrow. But what's the profit? And under the sun... It's really hard to answer that question. And so what the teacher does is he looks at these seasons filled with joy and sorrow, and he says, what do these seasons teach us about life beyond the sun? I mean, life is confusing, isn't it? It's one minute, it's filled with great joy and laughter. You're happy. It's like everything is wonderful. And then the next minute can be filled with tragedy and sadness and sorrow and loss. And it's a roller coaster. And in the good times, we're anticipating the bad times. And in the bad times, we're hoping for the good times. And the teacher, he says, but but what does that teach us about God? 
and about life beyond the sun. And in the second half of what Lindsay read, he gives us his answer. He says, what do workers gain from their toil? And then in verses 10 and 11, I mean, these are two of the most profound verses in the entire Bible. The teacher says this, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There's a lot packed into those two verses. First, he says, I've seen the burden. I've seen, and other, other translations will say, I've seen the busyness with which God has given people to be busy with. And he's talking about all these seasons that we go from one to the other to the other. I've seen it. And it can feel like a burden because we can't escape it. But then he goes on and he says, but he, that's God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He's saying in the midst of all of the coming and going, the planting and reaping, the building and tearing down, God has made everything beautiful. Another way you could translate that word beautiful is appropriate, suitable, fitting, good, and right. And so the teacher's looking back with this different perspective, saying when I consider all that happens in life, it's all fitting. It's all a part of God's plan. It's all beautiful. Well, that's, that's hard to swallow, right? Like there are parts of that that it's like, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, sometimes like some seemingly bad things happen and then we look back and we're like, oh, but God was in it all along. Like any Garth Brooks fans here, 90s country, like everyone remember Garth Brooks? No, there is a time for Garth and a time for not Garth because uh, he kind of disappeared. But you remember his song, Unanswered Prayers, and it's like, oh yeah, I wanted to date this girl and I wanted to marry her and then... That fell through, and then I met my other wife, and I'm so thankful for God for unanswered prayers. Like, sometimes we see that, and sometimes we're like, absolutely, I'm so glad that God didn't answer any number of these prayers. But then there are other times where it's like, no, but, but I really wanted God to answer this prayer. I really wanted healing here, and I don't know how I'm going to thank him if I don't get healing. I really wanted this to work out. I really wanted this relationship healed. But the teacher's saying, no, 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 it's all beautiful in the sense that it's all fitting, that God has a plan in everything, the planting and the uprooting, the being born and the dying, the times of peace and the times of war. And it's here where we bump up against, it's really like the teacher's been leading us down this path, and then we just came smack face to face with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God which God sovereignly rules over everything that comes to pass. From the rising of nations to the falling of sparrows, God rules over all, and he's in control over all. I mean, the teacher will actually say in Ecclesiastes 7, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made one of these along with the other. I mean, that's a challenging verse. And I think it challenges the way a lot of us think about God because we know God is good. And so when good times happen, it's easy for us to say, all right, here's God's hand. Here's what he's up to. But when bad times happen, we really struggle. 
And part of that struggle is very legitimate because there's a lot of mystery in this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. We do know that God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of sin. He doesn't delight in wickedness or death. We know that he is in the process of redeeming and reconciling all things through his son. But then we also have to acknowledge, man, when loss happens, when pain happens, when suffering happens, it's not that it happened apart from God's will. It's not that God was running around in heaven saying, I wish I could do something to help them, but my hands are tied. Like God is never crying out, plan B, I don't know what's going to happen. What do I do? No, he's in complete control. He's all-knowing and all-powerful. But there's some mystery here. And the mystery is, how does God use all things, good and bad, to accomplish his purpose? How in the world can we say that God and his sovereignty makes everything beautiful in its time? Some things, I just don't see how they're going to be beautiful. And the teacher explains why we struggle with this concept. In the next verse, he actually gives us two reasons why, why we, we struggle to understand that God is in complete control and he's making everything, working everything out. Number one, he says our first problem is that we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That we as finite human beings, we are not able to wrap our minds around what God is doing from beginning to end. I mean, if you think of eternity or even just the history of humanity as a long string, like we're just one tiny little dot on that string and we just, we don't have the perspective to understand everything that he's up to. You know, right before the pandemic hit, we got a puppy, our first dog. Um, We had five kids and we figured our house wasn't busy enough, so let's throw it a dog, and not just any dog, a giant dog into our midst. He's 20 pounds as a puppy. He's about 95 now. But I'll tell you, while the pandemic and social distancing wasn't so great for us humans, for that puppy, it was wonderful because humans were around all the time. We got to spend all of this time with him for his first year. And now that life's opening back up, he's, he's on the struggle bus a little bit because uh, he's getting left home a lot more by himself or with one person. He doesn't get nearly the attention <laughs> that he once got. And, and I've wondered, I wonder what life's like for him. Like if you put yourself in his paws for a minute, like how confusing I am and humanity is. It's like one minute we're scratching his head, telling him you're such a good boy. And then the next minute we're gone for eight hours and he's at home completely by himself. One minute, we're giving him a treat, treating him like he's a member of the family. Another minute, when we have visitors over, we have to lock him away so he doesn't tackle people. And it's like, am I part of the family or not? Where do I belong? Like, it has to be so confusing. Why do you guys leave? Why wouldn't you just stay here? You make make ribs the other night. And he smells them. It's like, why would you not just give those to me right now? Doesn't, I can smell them. They're right there. Just doesn't make sense. He can't fathom what we as human beings are up to at any given moment. And I think in the same way that the difference between God and us, the eternal God, the sovereign God, the the all-powerful God, we just, we're going to struggle to fathom what he's up to and how 
He's weaving together billions of lives and thousands of generations filled with unspeakable joys and untold sorrows. He's weaving all of those things into one beautiful tapestry, and we just can't see it all at the same time. Instead, we feel the planting or the uprooting, the building or the tearing down, and it's like we're just getting just glimpses of the story, and it's very confusing for us. So one reason we struggle with the doctrine of God's sovereignty is because we can't fathom it all. The other reason, though, is that the teacher tells us that God, it's one of the most fascinating lines in the Bible, Ecclesiastes 3.10, that God has set eternity in the human heart. So God has put us in this world that's filled with time and it's filled with sin, it's filled with death and disease and decay, and yet implanted in every single one of our hearts is a desire and a longing for eternity, for permanence, for something that extends beyond 70 or 80 years. And I mean, you don't, you don't have to be a Christian, you don't even have to believe in God to acknowledge that this is just true of what it means to be human. We all have this longing for eternity. That's why Every culture throughout human history has stories about the afterlife or tales of immortality, resurrection, the fountain of youth, Valhalla, whatever you want to call it. There is something hardwired into human beings that we desperately want to live forever. We want permanence. And yet we live in a world that's filled with entropy. And this longing... I mean, we can grow cynical to it in this world. We can grow cold to it. But if we're honest, every single one of us knows that it's true. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He's, he speaks to this in a roundabout way. He talks about this desire. He says, we don't merely, as human beings, we don't just want to see beauty, though God knows even that's bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. We as human beings, we want the good times to go on forever and the hard times never to return, but we live in this world in which nothing lasts. We live in a world where flowers wilt, grass fades, houses crumble, things fall apart. We fall apart. We bury those we love, and one day those we love will bury us. I mean, this is the burden the teacher, this is the burden that God has laid on mankind. We long for permanence, but we live in a world where everything fades. And if we can shake that cynicism, even the delights and disappointments of life can stoke that flame, that desire of eternity. In the delights, it's like, oh, I just want to live here forever. And in the losses, it feels, I mean, why does loss hurt so much? Because we want something that's going to last. And so we struggle. We struggle to see how everything's beautiful. And the teacher says, well, I struggled too, but he draws some conclusions. Verse 14, as he considers all that happens in the world, he says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. So here he's saying, I know God's good. And, 
Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. He's got a plan, and he's going to achieve his plan. And God does all of this so people will fear him. So one of the teacher's takeaways is that God has ordered the world in this way where everything fades, but we long for eternity so that we'll fear him. And fear there doesn't mean that we will cower and tear from him. Like, we'll just be dreading his presence, but instead that we as people might recognize that he is the creator and we are the creation and that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts and that we might honor and submit to him. So he's saying, when I'm trying to make sense of this, I know God's good and he's in control and he's got a plan and he wants us to fear him. And then his application for this sermon, I love it. I love the teacher's applications that come in Ecclesiastes says in verses 12 and 13, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy or to do good while they live. Being caught in between this longing for eternity and the confines of time. He's like, when it's all said and done, you know what? If you can be happy and do good while you live, that's good. If you can eat and drink and find satisfaction in all your toil, this is the gift of God. And I, I mean, I obviously don't think that answer's wrong or false. <sighs> but it is unsatisfying to me because I'm asking, what about the eternity that's rattling around in our hearts? Like, what about that? You're just saying, well, fear God. Seize the day. Enjoy your food. You're going to die like everyone else. What about that longing for permanence? And this is where we have to remember that Ecclesiastes is not the final word. Ecclesiastes, in fact, it asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. And the teacher, whether it be Solomon or not, he plums the depths of human longing and and he draws some good conclusions. But if we actually want to get to the bottom of that desire for eternity, we have to look to the one who was declared greater than Solomon. Because centuries after these words were written... The eternal God, who's always existed outside of time, stepped into time. Think about that. The immortal God, the unkillable God, took on mortality. The God in whom there is no shifting or turning, there's no seasons, he's always good all the time. He stepped into this world into the delights and the disquiets. Jesus, he put himself in our shoes and he experienced our delights. He knew friendship. He knew laughter. He knew joy and wonder. He would heal someone. And, you know, when the man with the shriveled hand and then his hand's not shriveled anymore, it's like, could you imagine the look on his face and what that had to feel like for Jesus to get to see? Healing. The adventures he went on with his friends, you know, whether it's feeding the 5,000 or Peter, like walking on water and then kind of sinking. And I just wonder how many times at night sitting around the campfire, they'd retell the stories. You know, they'd be jabbing at each other. be like, Peter, remember the one time you almost sunk because you didn't trust in Jesus? And he'd be like, oh, what I remember is I got out of the boat while you fools were still sitting there. And you can just imagine them like living life together, filled with delight. Jesus was feasting. He was called a glutton and a drunkard because he knew the delights. But he also, 
He knew the disquiets and the disappointments and the letdowns. Like he, he knew that there was a time to search. And so he went and called people to himself. And he also knew there was a time to give up searching. He weeps over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have longed to gather you under my wings. But, but she refused. There was a time to come together and embrace. And then there was a time for scattering. That on the darkest night of his life, he was abandoned by his closest friends and betrayed by one of them. He was, as Isaiah said, a man of sorrows who experienced rejection. And on the cross, he experienced the pain and the loss and the hell of all of the disquiets of this life for us. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, I thirst. And Paul, he helps us make sense, bring meaning to the death of Jesus Christ when he writes in Romans 5, you see at just the right time, love that, at just the right time while we were still powerless, while we with eternity, eternity rattling around inside of us and nothing we can do to stop the slow of time, at just the right time while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he died, as the scriptures say, in order to bring us to God. Remember what happened on the temple, in the temple as Jesus declared it is finished? The giant curtain that separated the holy of holies from everyone else. The, the place where God's spirit dwelt in a unique way that was always cordoned off. The place where the eternal God met Mortals, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And after Jesus' resurrection, he poured his spirit, the spirit of the eternal God, into our hearts. And even more than that, Paul tells us that Jesus' resurrection, he was the first fruit. And, and it, it might seem like a minor point, but it's not. Jesus, he wasn't resuscitated from the grave. He wasn't lying in the grave. Someone got the paddles and brought him back to life. He was resurrected. And resurrection is not just coming back to life. Resurrection includes transformation. Because we see it in his body. He's eating fish one minute. He's walking through walls the next. Like he is on a completely different plane of existence. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he inherited a body that would never perish, spoil, or fade. Permanence. And Paul's saying in his resurrection, that's, that's, he's the first fruit. That's going to happen to all of us who belong to him. That's our hope. That's why we can mourn but still be filled with joy. Because we know that that longing for eternity that God placed in our hearts, he put it there to lead us to himself. When we find our peace in him, we can endure whatever turmoil this life throws at us.
And so three takeaways from this, this wonderful, mysterious, challenging text. Number one, the disappointments and disquiets of life are never meaningless. Ecclesiastes 3 teaches us that the disappointments and disquiets of life, they're never meaningless. You know, the the not-so-fine print of the New Testament is that a life of faith is a life filled with troubles, hardships, suffering, and loss. And I think this is just one of the hardest lessons to learn, and we have to learn it again and again, that there's, there's still some level of superstition in the human heart. I know I have it in mind. I know it when I talk to you, this, this thought that if we're following God and we're honoring Jesus with our life, that things should go rather well for us when Jesus says, no, that's not the case. To be a human in a fallen world is to suffer. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, In this world, you will have trouble. Peter, you know, who was the slowest to learn the lessons Jesus was teaching him, he had to hear it again and again. Peter, in his letter, he says, don't be surprised by fiery trials. Don't think that something strange is happening to you. Life, it's it's filled with disappointments and disquiets. But one of the great anchors God has given us in Christ is that those things are never meaningless, that God is actively actively at work in every dimension of our lives. We see examples of this in Scripture. We sang about this one this morning. But if you think of Joseph, Joseph, you know, he was daddy's favorite, end of Genesis, daddy's favorite, rest of his brothers couldn't stand him. He was kind of cocky, and they ended up mistreating him, He gets sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Over time, he rises to this position of prominence and power. He's like the hand of the king. Uh, And a famine sweeps through the land, and God's people have to come to Egypt to eat so they don't starve. And when you're reading it, it's kind of set up like this great revenge story, kind of like Count of Monte Cristo, if you've ever read it. Like he was mistreated, and now he's become this man with great power, and his brothers come back to him, and oh, is he going to let them have it? And then when he encounters his brothers, he doesn't. He instead shows them an incredible amount of grace and forgiveness. And he says to them, Genesis 50, verse 20, He says, you guys meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The evil you guys brought against me led me to be here. Here I was able to plan and save and store up grain so that an entire generation would be saved. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is just what God does. This is one of the crucial parts of the Christian faith to to wrap our mind around. And we see it most clearly in the crucifixion of Jesus, the most evil act ever committed God used to bring about the most glorious, wonderful, beautiful act of reconciling us to himself. If he was able to ordain that tragedy for our good, how much more is he able to work out the disappointments, disquiets, and tragedies in our life? And so for those of you who are suffering, I just want you to know your suffering is not meaningless and God is not absent. 
He's working it for good. And I want to add two caveats to this. One, that doesn't mean that we don't weep or mourn. That doesn't mean that we cease to be human. A life of faith is not a life without tears. A life of faith recognizes that we don't have to live in a place of mourning. And two, knowing that God's working all things together for our good, that doesn't mean we should always try to figure it out, like what he's doing. And sometimes it's kind of apparent, you know, if you love money and you just want more and more and more, and then you lose your job or you get demoted, like you might be able to look and say, God might be up to something here. But a lot of times life is just too mysterious. You know, some of the most obnoxious people in the Bible are Job's friends. Remember? Remember what Job's friends went and did? Here's why this is happening. Here's why this is happening. Here's why. It's like, no, you guys are all wrong. Our call is not to try to figure it all out. Our call is to trust God in the midst of it. And to say, you're working it for good, and I choose to trust you. Number one, disappointments and disquiets, they're never meaningless. Number two, the delights of life are absolutely meaningful. God sovereignly ordains all that comes to pass. That means he's not only sovereign over our disappointments, he's also sovereign over life's delights. You know, and there's one form of Christianity that goes really far to this extreme that kind of portrays God as a cosmic Santa Claus who just exists to just rain down presents and money on us as long as we love him enough. And we rail against that. But there's another kind of Christianity that that's never actually able to receive the good gifts from God with joy and gratitude, but we actually receive it with suspicion. We're wary anytime God does something good in our life. Anyone? Am I the only one? I can skip this point if I need to. <laughs> I can just preach to myself later. Like there's, there's, there's something about like the church at this day and age and our, our church, there's something about us that makes us really wary of actually receiving the gifts of God and enjoying them and delighting in them. It's like we're afraid of that or something. We, we don't want to slip into materialism, which we shouldn't slip into materialism. You know, I don't know exactly what it is, but I do know that Jesus, in Matthew 7, he said, which of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven could give Give good gifts to those who ask him. Think about how Jesus is describing the father there. He's a great father who loves to give good gifts to his children. 1 Timothy 6.17, if you really want to make conservative Christians uncomfortable, Paul tells us that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Think about that. Now, I'm not saying we should just indulge our lives into a life of pleasure, and I'm certainly not saying we should entertain sin. What I am saying, though, is that God gives us wonderful and good things that we, are, we should enjoy and we should delight in because they train our desires. In Psalm 19, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. 
You look at the heavens and you learn something about God. They, the skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The psalmist is saying, when we look at the world and what God has created, it teaches us about him, his majesty, his power, and his greatness. And so too, when God gives us things that delight our soul, it teaches us about him and about us. And I guess I'm just saying too many Christians have their faith in one corner and the things that they really enjoy in the other and never the, the two shall meet. We don't live an integrated life. We have a great vacation, great meal, great music, great friendship, but a lot of times we don't actually make the connection to our great God. And I want to encourage you that if God's sovereign over all, that even the delights of life, they can teach us about God. I used to love, I think it was Luther. I can't remember. I couldn't find the quote. But some old dead guy used to have a great meal. And after the meal, he would say, what must God be like? After enjoying time with friends, after a time of great laughter, after a great vacation, like what must God be like to, to not only give us these things, but give us the ability to enjoy them? And so, yes, I want to be clear. Guard against gluttony. Every day can't be for feasting. Some days are for fasting. But some days we need to feast too. And we can and should enjoy the gifts of God. And I want to give you a real practical application because I think the way that we integrate the two is by gratitude, practicing gratitude. I'm going to challenge you this week to create a list of 100 things you're grateful for. Now, that seems like an awful lot. Like, just sit with it. I'm sure you won't struggle. hundred things you're grateful for. So the disquiets, they're never meaningless. The, the delights are always meaningful in some way. And then last, and le- last but not least, this text teaches us that contentment and confidence are possible today. We can find contentment and be filled with confidence today, here and now. And we do this as we learn more and more that God is our good father. We're able to endure the hard parts of life and we're able to enjoy the good ones because either way, he's our father and he's for us. And if we have wonderful things coming our way, praise him. And if we don't, he's wiser than we are and he knows what he's doing. This is what Paul summed up in Philippians 4. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have to plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in one, I can do all this through he, him who gives me strength. When we trust that our God rules our days and our lives and he's good, we're actually able to show up to life today with, with the wonders and the pains, the, the delights and the disquiets. We can be there. We can receive it. We can trust him. We don't have to live our lives looking backwards, like Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite. You know, when I was a high school, when I was a quit, like you're just living in the past, and we don't have to live our, our lives in the future of like, well, once this happens and Instead, we can be present today, knowing our good Father is in charge, and he cares for us. That's, 
That's the comfort and contentment. The confidence, though, comes through the table. When we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, sat down for a meal, which is supposed to be a wonderful time with his friends, but then he broke it and he said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant. It's going to be poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the table reminds us that God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. And that with him, he promises to give us, graciously give us all things. So if you're here and you're a Christian, this is a time for us to feast on the table or feast on this meal. To be re-centered that our, our God is not just sovereign, but he's so good. Maybe to let go of some things, maybe to confess some things, maybe to grab hold of some promises and to ask him to give us strength for today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal. But if you have trusted in Christ, please feast on what God has provided, knowing his care for you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.